60,000 times a day, your brain will solve a simple equation. The events of your life minus your expectations of how life should be. The events of your life minus your expectations. And it's continuously running this equation and evaluating. Every single change of context, believe it or not. So I'm talking to you, I'm holding this delicious cup of tea in my hand. I put it on my thigh, so, you know, during the conversation and my brain goes like, is that too hot? Right, I, I I raise it again, and then my brain will say, "Would would you know? Would my hand movement, you know, drop some tea on my uh, jeans?" And you're constantly every sl- single change of context, your brain is doing that comparison. Now, your happiness is equal to the difference between the event as you perceive it, and the expectation of how life should be. If you just do the math, hmm, you'll see that happiness is a moment where you did the math, event minus expectation, and you found that life was okay. Okay, very different than the definition we give for happiness, which is to go to a party on Friday night. It is being okay with life as it is, regardless of what life actually is. That's what happiness is. Welcome to Happy Bear Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Thanks for pressing the button. I know you could have pressed loads of other ones, and we are genuinely delighted to have you. Our aim is to inspire you to really ask questions to make you think of the deeper aspects of life and, of course, health, happiness, and well-being are at the core of it. So thanks, Mel, for being here. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> entertainment, absolutely. Who, who are you? Edutainment. I'm Sarah. <laughs> who are you? And, and who's that on your chest? This is Prince Ralph. Okay, that's, or that's, Emperor Ralph, as we like Sarah's to call him. baby, yeah. Little boy just yeah. sitting, just nuzzled in, and you might hear a few little, like, light <laughs> snores, and it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Oh, there he is. He is um, six weeks old now. Yeah. Wow, Pretty cool. cool. I know it's flybys, eh? Wow. Yeah, Soon he'll be it. six years. Ooh, there we go. Um, so did you enjoy Halloween, guys? Oh, there's a little Ralph. I little know, little Ralph. gorgeous. Uh, yeah, Halloween was last night. Um, yeah, so I, I got dressed up as, as Spider-Man and little Ned was mini-me. He was Spider-Man also. <laughs> That's my son, Ned, who's six. And uh, we went trick-or-treating. And it's the one day of the year where you can like call on people's houses and like the street that um, we live on at the moment where we're renting. Um, there's lots of these older houses and there's some kind of older couples in it and you get invited in. And you kind of sit there really? and you kind of like, yeah, little like, and uh, you're, like it's maybe in older days you were always invited in and you'd have a chat or you'd whatever. And we're invited into two of them last night. And it was just, it was so lovely rather than, it almost feels transactional at other people's houses. You call and you go, drink or drink, bring me something nice. And you go, oh, great. And you have tiny little exchange and you walk off and you go, that's bizarre. Like I just walk up to someone's house and I ding the doorbell and I get sweets and I walk out. Yeah, but Whereas you're supposed nice. to do a trick. I know, but that's gone. Like, and they didn't, my kids are trick or treat, trick or treat. But then the irony is that my kids, my kids for the first time ever, they they didn't want to go with me. They didn't Aww. want to go with the parents at all. Rejected. Yeah, I got rejected. And they went <laughs> off with their friends to the States. They wanted to go to the States where there's more housing, it's more denser population and they can get more clever. sweets. Which is kind of clever. And it was interesting because I love going up and down Church Road, which is where we live. And it's full of old people, and like not full of old people, but there's more people that have lived there for longer. <laughs> and um, like they do invite you in. And like, as one of them was saying, was like, well, we'll get invited in. And like, you know, this one guy, he'll be playing the piano for us and he'll be playing Christmas songs. And it's like October. And then he'll suddenly go back out and he'll think we're someone different and he'll play the same Christmas song. <laughs> I don't like that, daddy. And I think that's amazing. I think that's so funny and so interesting to be in someone's front room and that's what happens. I think that's deadly. But like, I always remember there were certain houses that would give you just like apples and you're like, come on. It's... Yeah, they said they got grapes. I don't want to get grapes no. again. And it's there like was one house last night offered us an apple and an orange out of like 50 houses we called. I right. ate three oranges. Yeah. 
<laughs> you're like gun deadly yeah. um, my dad though would like scare kids away because he'd force them to do a trick he'd be like I'm not giving you a sweet unless you do a trick Good on him. I, well, like when we when we used to trick or treat, you got monkey nuts as in their penis yeah. filled with their shell, or else you got fruit. And I remember one house we got dog biscuits. They put dog biscuits. In our <laughs> oh thing. my god! Yeah. Well, that was teenagers. So yeah. But yeah, Halloween. Anyway, interesting time to come back home, and then my kids dump out their bags, and it's literally like ten kilos worth of stuff, and the amount of chocolate bars and crisps. And How do sweets. you deal with it? What, yeah. I, what I do with mine is I go, okay, you can eat loads tonight, and then hand me your bag, and that's it. And it, normally the bag lives in the boot of the car and they don't see it again. Mine really? Say, yeah. Mine say, yeah. Uh, we're bringing it up to mommy's because if we stay here, I'm not going to get any of it. So they bring it up to their mom's house. That's and, gas. And I don't know. It's... Do you partake in any of their sweets? Uh, last night in solidarity, Izzy came back with a big bag of sweets and she was there by herself and there's no one. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll eat some sweets for a little bit. So I ate some sweets <laughs> for a little bit, which was cute. Some fizzers. Yeah, yeah, I, I had fun nibbling a few bits. <laughs> um, Lucy was enjoying them too. So this week's uh, podcast is with um, Mo, Mo Godot, who's a super interesting man. He really is. He was the ex-business chief officer of Google X, which is their moonshot department. What does moonshot mean? Moonshot means it's trying to solve a lot of Earth's problems, uh, humans' problems, really, with these <laughs> crazy big ideas. So they're really trying to change the world using... Pushing the boundaries of technology and how it can massively impact the human population at How large. How many years was he in Google for? I think it was 10 years he yeah. was the chief business officer. So but like pretty amazing character. Origin, like he, he speaks at one point where he had six, 15 or 16 like fancy ass cars had like the mansion, had the beautiful wife, had it all, but felt miserable. So he really, and he talks about happiness. Felt miserable with the beautiful wife. <laughs> well, maybe it wasn't that, but it was just more meaning, purpose I think or the, whatever. The, the thing which we talk about it today is about happiness. And it's all about the exploration of happiness because he is someone who focused on the material journey. He supposedly did everything that you're meant to do to be happy. Reached he, total high status, high material wealth. And found this. he felt miserable. And then it wasn't until like absolute catastrophe happened and his son died and he, he had to go through this journey and he's written a number of books in terms of happiness and acceptance happiness really being the main theme and today we talk about happiness as a choice is happiness a choice you know and this was something we camped in, in quite and a lot to someone listening you might go happiness a choice that's a load up but he makes a pretty impressive argument and he's got a really cool equation in terms of happiness and towards the end of the conversation it kind of goes on a total tangent and we explore AI he's written a book about AI and at one point he talks about how I think it's in 2048 the artificial intelligent will be a thousand times more intelligent than the most intelligent human being I think it's like and a just, million or a billion times anyway a significant number with many zeros after it uh, but I think he used the analogy that by 2048 um Artificial intelligence will artificial intelligence will be about the intelligence of Einstein's, and the most intelligent human will be about the intelligence of a flea, just to create a context or as a comparative um, line. Or anyway, this is a super interesting conversation, all about really happiness. cool, dude. And it was beautiful. We got to hang out with Mo in person. He came out. We had lunch in the farm. He always dreams of having a farm, and uh, it was just a beautiful afternoon. Yeah. Can I uh, add something? Yes, add please. something of value, actually. Oh, we like value. straight yes. from Mr. Mo. Uh, who says, uh, oh, he sounds like a Mr. Men book. <laughs> um, Mr. Mo, he was a moustache one, wasn't he? Mr. Mo. Mr. Mo. No, there was no Mr. Mo. <laughs> well, this is well, wait till you and Ralph start anyway. reading Mr. Men and Mr. Lady books and Miss, Miss Lady books. Well, Mr. Mo, anyway, has offered you a gift. The first hundred listeners of the Happy Pair to sign up will get an exclusive two months free access to his membership community. You get all the training material, Reiki-infused meditations and live webinars with Mo, his co-author Alice and expert guests. Sorry, that's a little Ralph piping up there. 
Um, this is worth 50 euros and you get it free for on his um, unstressable.com. That's unstressable.com. So sign up now and use the code the happy pair to be one of the first 100. The code okay, is cool. the happy pair. Unstressable.com. Okay, cool. Well, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we give you Mo Gordit. Mo has a wonderful podcast called Slow Mo. Great name. Uh, and we were guests on his podcast there. And it was great philosophical discussion. So that gives the context as to why. Um, uh, okay, okay, right on. Uh, this morning, I was on my way walking down to the beach and I was kind of reflecting and I was chatting with someone and I was saying that, uh, I, w- I was saying like, you know, happiness is a choice. Sure, and that's the philosophy you live by. Happiness yeah. is a choice. And we were back and forth about it. And, and I think that's a beautiful place to start because I remember reading a book. It was years ago. It was Bonnie Wade, I think it was. She wrote a book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And she yes. was a palliative care nurse. And she had, you know, obviously been there to help people transition to, you know, to death for, for a long period of time. And she wrote this book on the, the regrets of the dying. And one of them was, I wish I had allowed myself to be happy. And there was that when people were dying, they had this awareness that there was an element of choice within their happiness. And when I said, when I was discussing it this morning, you know, my friend who I was chatting to, they were like, no way, like, that's not true at all. And I was kind of going, well, you know, I think there's definitely, there's, there's a seed, if not a plant and a fruit here of truth. So it, it depending on how you want to look at it. A hundred percent true. A hundred percent true. I mean, when you really think about it. Um, uh, if you and I decide to be nice to each other today, uh, which we have been, that's affecting our happiness. It's a choice. If you, you know, are stressed at work tomorrow and you decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to take 10 minutes break and go, you know, stretch and do some exercise or whatever, that's part of your choice. But but it goes a lot deeper than that. It really is. It, it appears to be uh, something outside our control because of how overcomplicated we make the topic. You see, in 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 engineering complex systems, if the system is driven by multiple uh, um, stimuli, if you, if lots of things can affect a certain outcome, the system appears to be super complex. You think that it's random. You think that it's irrational. You know, like even things like fitness, for example, where if you go to, a, 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 you know, a hundred personal trainers, each and every one of them will tell you, you know, tiny little details about how to become fit. But the truth is very simple. To become fit, make fitness your priority and do the work. It's it's really not, not that complicated at the top level. Now, happiness works so predictably, like fitness, if you make it your priority and do the work, it will happen, right? It, at least you'll become happier. There is absolutely no doubt about it. And that's because happiness is so predictable that it follows a mathematical equation. And the core of my work has been to try and explain that equation to people. It's not, it's not the events that happen in your life that make you happy or unhappy. It's, it's, a, it's a much more intricate uh, um, um, process that involves a comparison that happens inside your head between the event and between uh, what you want life to be. So, so I came here to visit you guys and you just took me around the cafe, around the restaurant, around the bakery, around the farm, around the factory, and you just kept feeding me. Like it's, I, I've never had so much delicious food ever in two hours in my life. But if I was a carnivore that insisted that food without meat would not be you know, sufficiently delicious, it doesn't matter. I wouldn't have liked what you're offering me. So it's not what you're offering me, which is fabulous food alone. 
it's also how I want life, how I want food to be. If my expectation is that should, food should be a steak, I'm going to be disappointed with all of the wonderful things that you fed me. And this applies to everything. I, I, you know, the example I always give is rain. Hmm? Rain has no inherent value of happiness or unhappiness in it. I mean, you know that in Ireland. If, if I lived here, I'd be miserable because I don't, I'm not used to rain. I don't know how to deal with it. And, you know, with my bald head, it has, seriously, it has a lot more of a serious effect. Like every drop, you feel it, right? Now, you guys don't even think about rain. And, and the joke I always make is, uh, is you know, rain itself, if it was on your ex-girlfriend's uh, uh, wedding day, makes you very happy. If it was on your wedding day, it makes you very unhappy. There's no inherent value of happiness in rain itself. It's that comparison in your head. Do I want it to rain? Now, so it's almost like the stories we tell ourselves as opposed to the actual absolutely. event itself. Absolutely. So, so this, is where, this is where the choice comes in. So if, if it's a comparison between the event and the expectation, it's very predictable. Hmm? Your brain, if 60,000 times a day, your brain will solve a simple equation. The events of your life minus your expectations of how life should be. The events of your life minus your expectations. And it's continuously running this equation and evaluating. Every single change of context, believe it or not. So I, I'm talking to you, I'm holding this delicious cup of tea in my hand. I put it on my thigh, so, you know, during the conversation and my brain goes like, is that too hot? Right? I, I, I raise it again and then my brain will say, would, it, would, you know, would my hand movement, you know, drop some tea on my uh, jeans? And you're constantly, every single change of context, your brain is doing that comparison. Now, your happiness is equal to the difference between the event as you perceive it and the expectation of how life should be. If you just do the math, hmm, you'll see that happiness is a moment where you did the math, event minus expectation, and you found that life was okay. okay? Very different than the definition we give for happiness, which is to go to a party on Friday night. It is being okay with life as it is, regardless of what life actually is. That's what happiness is. Right. I like your definition because it almost brings it back to like, and it's funny, like if you, the word present we choose, like present means the present moment, but also mm -hmm. present means a gift. The gift. And I yeah. think that's ultimately it. If we can accept the present moment in any spiritual practice, we'll say like ultimately true happiness is acceptance. It's not fighting. It's not, it's not working against what's happening. But if you can accept what is, and then you're in flow. And what is not but, to accept about the present moment? And then that also brings you back to, you know, we're using these words. We talked earlier about feminine and masculine mm -hmm. and the feminine nature is to kind of, is more accepting and more surrendering. Inviting. Whereas the male energy is the masculine because it's independent of gender is more about forcing your will and your, you know, your, your creating, Fire, bringing yeah. into reality. Yes. Yeah. So, so the very nature in terms of happiness, there's an element of just accepting and surrendering, one, which is more feminine. One, one of the biggest reasons for unhappiness in the world and the reason why I'm working on, you know, I work on several books at the same time and one of them is called Her. And Her is really all about not empowering women per se, but empowering the feminine and accordingly uh, allowing the feminine women to be fully feminine, not just empowering them to succeed by asking them to become men with feminine body parts, if you know what I mean. And, and it's quite interesting because that concept of attempting to force yourself through life is the absolute contradiction with the happiness equation. Because if happiness is events minus expectations, okay, the masculine with its forcefulness is constantly saying, I don't like it this way. 
I need to force a path through it. I don't, you know, this, uh, um, you know, project as it is producing this much profit as it is today, that's not good enough. We need to grow. We don't, we're not happy that it is working well today. We want it to grow in the future. That's the hyper masculine world that we've created. And so what do you do? You force yourself into more work, more more stress, more, you know, uh, desires if you want. And, and instead of actually being contented, being grateful, being proud of what you've achieved. And, and, and that contrast between masculine and feminine is, is really one of the top v reasons why uh, uh, we are ha unhappy in the modern world. And now, going back to your original question, Dave, so if, if happiness is not just about what life gives you, Okay, it's not just about rain or no rain. It's about that comparison between your perception of what life gave you and what you want life to be. Then it's a hundred percent a choice, because you are the one that is setting your expectations. You are the one that looks at the event and interprets it in certain ways. You tell the story, like Steve was saying, right? So, so you you know, an event happens. Your partner says something harsh on a Friday evening, Saturday morning. Your brain is not telling you your partner said something harsh. Your brain is telling you he or she doesn't love you. That's a story. That's, that, that's not the event anymore. It's your perception. It's your interpretation of the event. And that's a choice. Okay. You compare that and say, my partner shouldn't ever say something harsh to me. Or, you know, my partner should love me if that's the contradictory story. Okay. And suddenly you've set that expectation. Where did that expectation come from? We all live in a very stressful life, you know, and it's expected sometimes that your partner will come from work on a Friday evening after a stressful week and maybe be a little harsh. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's okay if it's not repetitive and it's not a dysfunctional part of the relationship. It's okay. You, you can have that expectation and still be contented with your partner, with your partnership, with your life, with your love life, with what life is giving you. And if you manage to make those choices, which by the way, don't happen in the, in the real world, they happen inside your head, then you will have chosen to be happy. Yeah, like I think, I, like can, and to, to give a real life example to work on it right now, like regularly, so we grew up in a house that was quite, you know, my parents grew up in an era children should not be seen, should be seen, not heard, you know, this type of an environment. So we grew up in a house <laughs> with four boys. So it was like, go to bed, up the stairs, into bed, don't want to hear from you, done. Bed. Now, when I'm a parent, uh, you know, I have three children, me and my wife. And so in my head, I think that's the way putting kids to bed is. My wife grew up in quite a different house. So it's like the kids stay up till about half nine. And then it's like it's a skirmish to get him into bed. Right? <laughs> it could take an hour. It could take two hours. God knows what happens in between. So regularly when I put my kids to bed, it's fucking, the excuse my language now, but it's, it's like one of the hardest things that could happen during the that. day, yeah. because in my head, it should be the way it is. Yeah. Versus the reality, when I relax and I accept it, it can be beautiful opportunity to have great chats. Aww. But there's this, there's this constant conflict in my head. But when we have this conversation, I'm like, shit, that's all right. Great reminder. This is what it's all about. Yeah. So, so can you imagine this same event of putting your kids to bed could be the highlight of your day. Mm. Hmm? If your expectation was, oh my God, I have maybe up to an hour now before they fall asleep, I can connect to them, right? But if your expectation is, kids should obey what they're told. Oh yeah, I got that. I got that script going on too. The, the, good luck. Because yeah. where, where, where have you lived? I mean, even you as a child, did you obey what you were told? No. Or did you break the rules all the time? Hmm? And that's, that's what we tend to forget. Life is never ever hmm, going to give you exactly what you want. 
You know, so that's an interesting, so so take that happiness equation, huh? and uh, and let's to take a couple of examples that I know are dear to your heart. Huh? Happiness is events minus expectations. Events minus expectations. You're running that script in your mind. Hmm? Nature. We're always happy in nature. Now, I know you guys love nature. But nature is not perfect in any way. Nature has spiders and 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 you know snakes. and ants and snakes and it's windy. Your nature here in in Ireland is is rainy. Uh, you know sometimes uh, you know there is never really a tree that grows perfectly vertical like ninety degrees as it should, right? But no one ever complains. No one ever looks at nature and says this misses my expectations. You expect nature to be wild and chaotic and you know you expect that so you love it everyone you put anyone in nature they go like that's amazing nobody complains about the noise by you know that's made by the ocean while they like the view nobody complains if there is a monotonous sound of the waves you go like that's it now the interesting side of of things goes further so when you look at an opportunity like having time with your kids or like empowering your kids to be free as long as they're not doing something that's that contradicts your value system allowing them to to explore and live which is what we all wished for growing up hmm? that level of opportunity does not warrant you accepting it it's not just that the event meets your meets your expectations you could go further you could find gratitude in that one hour that you spend with them now, what does gratitude, why does gratitude make us happy? Hmm? Because it goes further. It's the absolute acceptance of the moment. It's, it's yeah, exactly. It's looking at the moment and saying, this is not just meeting my expectations. It's beating my expectations so much that I'm grateful for it. Right? And that reminder in your brain goes like, okay, I'm going to shut up now. If, 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 if I can feel the gratitude, your brain has nothing to complain about. And believe it or not, I mean, I say that with respect to everyone listening to us. If you have a digital device that you can afford, that's connected to the internet, and you have an hour to spare, and you have a roof on top of your head, and you're obviously not starving to death, so you can actually afford to come and listen to our conversation, then by definition, you should be grateful. Think about what's happening in Iran or what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in, in you know, starving people in Africa. And most of us forget hmm, that you really did not do anything to have the privilege of being born into that life, even if it's tough compared to your neighbor. Hmm, it's actually super easy compared to 6 billion people on the planet. Hmm? And we forget that. And so if we can put the gratitude in place and say, yeah, my boss is annoying, Okay, my uh, uh, partner said something harsh on Friday. It's going to be raining for the next week, but I'm so blessed with so many other things that I won't take for granted. Then happiness is a choice. You've made that choice. You've looked at it and you said, yeah, it's never going to be perfect. Life is never going to be perfect. I, I, I totally agree. And it brings up in me, it makes me go, okay, well, here we are, you know, if I look at when we plant something in the farm, it's very dependent on the environment. Yes. The environment, if I plant something in crap soil and it doesn't get enough water and not enough sun, it ain't going to grow. Whereas I plant something in nice fertile soil, it gets the right conditions, it grows and it flourishes and it's wonderful. And I think nowadays we live in a culture which is not really the perfect environment for happiness to blossom. And Sadly true. 
yeah, I really think it's it's almost that we're almost at oppositions. You know, as we said, it's a very masculine environment where we're very focused in the future, where it's a very busy, it's busy, it's demanding, you know, modern life is. And I kind of go, here we go. We have a schooling system, which is focused on, you know, passing exams and maths and geography and English and French and Irish and whatever the kind of la- things you've got to learn. And I'm kind of going like, why don't we learn this stuff? Like, because this is fundamental to being. It's like this internal landscape. How do we manage our own? Like, because everyone has their own internal dialogue going on and we're mm. all reacting to different things in a day. Yet every every parent, if you ask them, what do you want for a kid? They go, I just want them to be happy. And it's like, <laughs> well, we kind of like, how yeah. do we, how do we change the the human experience, you know, by starting in micro little small environments? Because it's almost like, I think your question is, how do we change our education system? That it celebrates us to be more human beings as opposed to human doings. And probably more the current... and probably more gratitude baked into it because like what you just said is so true. And and everyone kind of listened to you goes, Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right there. Okay, I'm I'm probably am more fortunate than six billion people on the planet, but I don't have the new iPhone. You know, or whatever it is, you know, because our, our minds are just doing this. So you look at Instagram and you go, Oh, I'd love to go to Bali. I've never been to Bali. Like, look, Paul is in Bali. That's not oh, I'd love to maybe we'll go to Bali next year. I don't have enough money, you know, or whatever. So <coughs> these are these are seven different questions. Let's me let me. It's take not really a question. It's a rant, I guess. <laughs> let me let Excuse me the take rant. them. Let me take them one by one. I, I, you don't teach children to be happy. There, there's no re- need to, ch- to to teach a child to be happy. No. Children are happy. Okay. Can we please stop unteaching them? Or can we, can we stop teaching them how to be unhappy? If you want, right? Very mm. true. And, Very and, good. And, and, and and I think that the reality is we are born happy. A child that's given their basic needs for survival is lying on its back and giggling. Really, that doesn't ask for an Xbox or an Instagram like it. You know, we 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 grow into this with what you rightly said, Dave. You know, with the pace of the modern world. The the modern world does a very interesting thing to us. It tells us, hey, there is another priority. There's something more important than happiness. Okay, there are, you know, the looks of your partner is more important than being happy with them or the money that you make at work is more important than, you know, being happy at work. And, and, and we just prioritize differently and we're very capable creatures. So, so if you set your mind to, I'm going to make more money, regardless of how, you know, um, depressed I am, you're likely going to focus on the money and accordingly, you're likely going to do slightly better on the money than you are on your depression. It's, it's, a, it's as simple as that. Now, the, the, the reality is, uh, I don't believe that education systems make any difference at all. I, I believe that we as parents, and you know, I, I do have five uh, books coming out, five children books coming out by the end of the year. And it took me a very long time and to work with a wonderful partner who's worked on this before, Shelley Lewis. And, and Shelley and I are trying to have a, a beautiful hidden message to children saying, just stay as you are, just be a child. When you guys were on my podcast and I asked you what's the secret to happiness, you just celebrated the idea of a little bit of a child that continues to live within me even if I'm 70, right? And that's the idea. The idea is can we tell children, hey, by the way, you have the right to be happy. Believe it or not, I cried. I was teaching at a school in uh, in the Netherlands of gifted children. So these are the smartest gifted children out there. And at the end of my talk, uh, one of them, very intelligent young man, asked amazing questions, around 16 years old, uh, came to me and cried. And I cried with him because he said, I never knew I had the right. It's not what you taught me about how to be happy. I never thought that I was allowed to be happy 
or everyone is just telling me, you know, get more higher scores in your exams, learn more things, do extracurriculum activities. You know, this is what I'm being told. And we have a role as parents to stop doing this. And I, I call it the swap test. I go to every parent and I say, okay, if I gave you two choices, choice number one is for your kids to be extremely successful and clinically depressed, okay? And choice number two is for your children to have enough to get by, but be very, very happy. Which would you choose? Number two every day though. I think Absolutely, would. right? Now, of course, we're, life is not that black and white. You want a bit of a mix in the middle, but now you know what matters to you. The swap test is basically- No, I just prefer two. Uh, uh, let's go for two. two yeah, let's better, go yeah. for two, right? And, and the idea is, is that what we teach our kids? No. When we put them through school, is that what we as parents tell our kids? No. My, my wonderful ex-wife, which I believe has been, in my, in my view, the, the epiphany of the feminine, the best mother I've ever seen. Hmm? She came to me when my kids were two or three, and I'm like a bit like you, Steve. You know, I wanted my kids to be disciplined and, you know, persevere and do the best they could. And, and she came to me and she said in her very wonderful way, she said, I realized something. Of course, she knew that all along. She was just saying, I realized so that, you know, now I can listen. She said, they're not me and they're not mine. I have no right to tell them what they're going to be, okay? They, I am here, I am theirs to guide them through the process of finding out who they are. Think about that. Your role as a parent when your kids can't walk, can't eat, can't do anything is to protect them and provide for them. But there is a point, perhaps as they start to become six, seven, eight, where they start to make choices. And those choices will obviously be not the choices you want them to make because you did not grow in their, you know, in their generation. You don't know anything about their life, okay? And can you be that conduit where you say, okay, you know, what do you want? Do you want to play tennis? Let's try tennis. You, what do you want? Do you want to uh, play uh, the guitar? Let's try the guitar. What do you want? And just keep doing that. And I, I remember vividly, Habibi, my kids... Um, my kids tried everything. And you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks later, people will go to us like, force them to do it. Like, why? Why force them to do it? Until one day Ali, my son, Habibi, he was amazing. He was just a tiny little Zen monk, uh, honestly. And he comes to us and he says, uh, Papa, uh, I wanna do archery. What? Like, he's, he was 11. And I, what archery? I, I don't know if we have archery in Dubai. Anyway, we ask around, there is this place, 35 kilometers away. Uh, and we have to drive there only on Friday because that's the only time where there is um, practice exercise with the coach there. And Friday was our weekend. So Friday, the first Friday, we go 35 kilometers away, 35 kilometers back. And, you know, he does archery, he does really well. And so he says, can I do go again next Friday? We take him again next Friday, he does really well. So the coach says the next Friday is the national championship why don't you just enroll him? Uh, you know, it's just gonna be the group of people here anyway. And give it, you know, so that he gets a flavor of it. I said, sure, no problem, let's enroll him. So the next Friday, Ali shows up, he's 11, tiny. Hmm? Perfect 10, he shoots a perfect 10, every one of his arrows in the bullseye, okay? Becomes the national champion. <laughs> age 11? Age 11, on the third time he tries to play. Okay, wow. and now listen to this. 
And then he puts the bow and arrows down and says, that's it, I'm done. Don't want to do archery again. Imagine, of course, me, hmm, the engineer, the executive, the businessman, I was like, what? You, 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 could, we, become, we you could become the world champion in this. She, Nibel, my ex, amazing wisdom, says, sure, Habibi, what would you like to do instead? Okay. And you're there in the back going, <laughs> I'm hyperventilating. But you know what? Hmm? Who cares if he had become the, the world champion? Honestly, why do we want to become world champion? Why? Ego. Be absolutely spot on. Mm -hmm. Because we think that if you're the world champion, hmm, you're going to be celebrated in a way that makes you feel good about yourself. And if you feel good about yourself, you're going to be happy. He tried the experience. He loved it. He aced it. He's happy about himself already. Mm. There's no need for any of the other bit. I, I noticed the same at my daughter's because we grew up play, playing a lot of sport and competitive sport and that gave us great joy and purpose. And I have two girls and they don't have a competitive bone in their body. It, there you go. And I've tried them with, you know, all the various sports and they've no interest. And then Elsie started playing the piano and which, which we tried and we all failed at it miserably. But Elsie just plays it and it's, it's like watching a duck and a swan in water. Man. It's like just... Like, I'm amazed to see when someone finds something that they naturally have, just how, it's like just watching, it's just glorious to watch this. Absolutely. This, this curious, creative expression unfold and to see a language that I can't speak, she just. Did you notice how happy she is doing it? She doesn't have to practice. She just yeah. loves that's, playing that's it. Your, she loves that's your answer. It. Yeah, that's so your answer for happiness and kids. Hmm? We get shoved into places that we're not supposed to be. I, my research on happiness started, believe it or not, so I, I was very miserable as a young man. I was very happy until age 26. By 29, I was rich as F. I was so rich, it was unbelievable. I, you know, it was before the time online trading and, and the internet was quite big. And I was hyper-mathematical, so I read a few books on trading learned the equations, built my own trading system, and I promise you, I was printing money on demand, <laughs> okay? My, my, I swear, my wife would come and say, hey, we need to change the car, and I would say, what would you like, honey? And she would say, this car, and I would say, okay, Wednesday, right? Literally, it meant I needed to trade on Monday, Tuesday to make enough money to upgrade her car on Wednesday. That was how ridiculous it was, okay? <laughs> Amazing. I promise you, right? And I was miserable. I was miserable. I was clinically depressed, right? And when you start to understand this, huh, that all that they tell us, all that they tell us that we should achieve. Remember, I'm Egyptian, born and raised in Egypt, public school, public university in Egypt, never expected to get anywhere in life, let alone the places I got to, chief business officer of Google X, is like the best job on the planet. Yeah, right? it's kind of right up there. Absolutely. I have no expectation whatsoever. And yet, the more I succeeded in my early life, the more miserable I've become. And then one day, I was sitting, at the time I was uh, um, um, the, the emerging markets director for Microsoft, uh, working on the communication sector. And I, Seattle was our headquarters. So I traveled there quite, ex you know, once a month, basically. And I was sitting in a cafe somewhere. I remember vividly, it was the, uh, the old iPod that uh, had 10 megabytes on it or something like that. And basically 50 songs or 10 songs or something like that. And we thought it was a miracle, by, by the way. Huh? Life spoils you. Anyway, um, 
uh, I'm sitting there and there is a song by Super Tramp. You're not old enough to remember Super Tramp. I remember Tramp. Super Tramp. Yeah. Oh, you do? You do? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So, so Super Tramp has a song that's called The Logical Song. And the logical song starts with, when I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful. Uh, you know, all the birds on the trees were singing so happily. And yeah, you notice that. You observe that with children, okay? They really don't need much to be happy. They're just happy as they are, okay? And then the song changes key or tone uh, and basically says, and then they sent me away to teach me how to be sensible, logical, responsible, practical, clinical, cynical. Okay. Ooh. They sent me away. Yep. And That's nice. Isn't that the story of your life? Hmm? You were happy until you started to decide to flow with what they're sending you away to do. Okay. If you start to tell yourself, if 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 they tell you to be clinical and cynical, what do you do? Hmm? We're capable humans. We become very clinical. We become very cynical. We 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 observe everything and look for what's wrong with it. And when do you do that? When you do that, what happens? Your events always meets you, misses your expectations. Okay? If you're looking with what's wrong with life, the event misses expectations. This incredible hummus you just gave me, okay? I, I can look at it and say, oh, but the, the pack is a little too big. You know, it should have been a tiny bit smaller. And, and instead of enjoying the joy of this fresh, beautifully, you know, crafted um, uh, snack that I, you know, I could be grateful for, I could find the one thing that doesn't meet my expectations in it and then be critical of that. People who get educated to do this, they become extremely unhappy in life. And I'm sure you know someone like that. You tell them it's going to rain tomorrow, they're unhappy. You're gonna, you tell them it's going to be sunshine tomorrow, they're unhappy. Okay? You tell them that you know they're going to make a bonus, they're unhappy. You tell them they're not going to make them a bonus, they're unhappy. Whatever it is. Hmm? You know that there are cultures at, at large, there are countries at large, okay? that are very critical, very, very, very always looking for what's wrong. Okay? And most of the people that you meet from those cultures are constantly unhappy. Well, there are a lot of Western cultures. Really, there you go. Because not allowed to you know, say that. It's a machine. Yes. You know, we're all you know, units of labor within the machine and we need to find problems to make the problems better and whatnot. There you go. You know, and a question which I, which just came, appeared, came upon me there when you were talking about that is essentially so many of us nowadays, me included, everyone listening can relate to this, that we're puppets. We're puppets to the show of life. Life, you know, gives you an ice cream and gives you a bonus. I feel good. You walk out, it's raining and the dog ate your homework and the car won't start. I feel bad. You know, uh, I walk along, oh, they have a new, nice cup of coffee, I feel good. Uh, nice croissant, I feel good. Oh, I'm overweight, I feel sad. And it's like, we're puppets, like my wife gave out to me, I feel sad. And it's like, how do we, like, so you've been, you've had incredible experiences. You've reached the highs of material life. Your it's son has died. Mm -hmm. you, you've experienced the absolute depths of life. And you've been on this journey of kind of rationally engineering happiness. And I'm wondering, like, what have you found in your own personal journey to not be a puppet to the, to the, to the kind of, to the externalities of life that, that play out in everyone's life? Stop being a puppet. What, what can I tell you? Do you really have to watch the news every morning? Do you? I haven't done in years. Absolutely. And you're a happier person for it. If you wake up every morning and the first thing you start is you switch on your phone or your or your TV and listen to the to the news, by definition you're telling yourself the world is horrible. Okay, I did that 
as an experiment. No disrespect to the BBC. When I was growing up, the BBC was the only source of objective news uh, in the Middle East because everything else was censored. We we absolutely lived by it. So when I, I came and lived in the in, in 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 the UK a couple of times in my life, and so I gave that an experiment. It was like BBC or CNN or whichever whichever news network. Hmm? There is a pattern if you open your mind and, and remove the content, okay? The first piece of news is something in the politics of your country that is that sucks. The second piece of news is a politician that did something disgraceful. The third piece of news is some someone suffering somewhere. A, a child fell in a well or somewhere, okay? The fourth piece of news is we're all gonna die whether it's going to be because of, you know, the war in Ukraine or COVID or whatever that is. And then the fifth piece of news is a penguin kissed a cat, yalla, get up and go to work, <laughs> okay? Because otherwise you wouldn't get up and go to work. Now, I'm working my next book and actually the membership we're, we're publishing uh, soon, it's called Unstressable. Now, Unstressable is basically the idea of how stressful the modern world has become. Hmm? but that you actually have a choice. You can limit all of that. Hmm? When, when Alice, my co-author, speaks about that in the membership, she says, stroke one, you wake up in the morning with a, a, an aggressive alarm, okay? Stroke two, you reach to your phone and you find an upsetting message on WhatsApp. Stroke three, you open the, you know, the news and, then, and that's stroke three, four, five, and six of negativity. Stroke five, you know, seven, you're, you're, you're late. So you, you, you're now rushing and st feeling stressed. Hmm? And we just hit one stroke after the other. You know what I do when I wake up, okay? First of all, I don't wake up to an alarm. I sleep eight hours to, or nine hours earlier than I need to wake up. How difficult is that, right? So I wake up relaxed and happy. I very, 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 very slowly think, not even make my coffee, think about what coffee I want today. Okay, am I in the mood for something with a little oat milk to make it creamy or do I want that crisp little, you know, Americano? Then I take five minutes, 10 minutes to make my coffee. Then I sip my coffee. Have you, do, do we, did we forget that? And yeah, people can tell me, but I'm late for work. Wake up 20 minutes early. Like I, I did that experiment when I used to work at Google. I used to go to the New York office very frequently. And if there is one place in the world that's more stressful than the UK, it's New York, okay? In New York, I promise you, they, they time the, the traffic lights uh, in Manhattan so that if you walk really fast, like those athletes, hmm, you can catch a green wave and go through all of them without having to wait for the traffic light. Okay, as you go from block to block. I, I stayed 42 blocks away from, uh, from my office at Google. And so the first day I rushed like a maniac. I'm, I'm a Middle Eastern, we walk slowly, right? So I rushed like a maniac to make the green wave. Made it, uh, let's just, I, don't quote me on those numbers, but made it to the office in 32 minutes. It was sort of an insult to my identity that I rushed so much, right? So the next day I decided, you know what? I'm gonna wake up half an hour early and walk a little slower. And I did. Woke up half an hour early, walked into a cafe, ordered the coffee, held it in my hand nicely, walked reasonably slowly, missed every third traffic light, so stopped there for 30 seconds. Big deal, right? Made it to the office in 39 minutes instead of 32. It's brilliant. Isn't that a choice? Yeah. It really is a choice. Wake up a little early, allow yourself 
you know, remove all of those stressors from your life, hmm? remove them. And what ends up happening is that you have chosen a lifestyle that allows you to, to, to peek into happiness. You're not the puppet anymore. Hmm? And when you're not the puppet, when you choose your own, you guys chose to eat healthy vegan food, right? Yeah. You know, some people will struggle with that, but if you're okay with it, it's lighter, it's easier. You know, it's it it conforms to your your um you know your value system and value set. It makes you feel good about I'm trying to contribute to the planet. Hmm? It's a choice. Can can you can you can can you sit back and take inventory of the stressors in your life? So we we were it's just so so on top of my uh, my head because we were recording the videos for the membership. Hmm? Can you take inventory of all of the stressors in your life? Sit down and tell yourself, what are the big traumas that affected me negatively? What are the obsessions that I keep thinking about in my head over and over and over and over and over? And they affect my heart and they're big deals and they don't even exist, okay? What are then, we call them nuisances, huh? What are the little things that you wake up in the morning like that little alarm or, you know, whatever? Can you remove, yeah, can you remove those? Can you do them the night before? Can you change them? Can you make the alarm a little gentle, gentler? Can you allow yourself 15 minutes of meditation in the morning or, or noise, the, 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 the fourth one we call noise? You know, the noise, the, the little thoughts, you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you go like, oh, you're fat. Like, why, man? Why did you say this? Seriously, huh? And can you take you know, stock of those? And can you tell yourself, no more? No more. I'm not gonna, I mean, traumas are out of our control, but all of the rest are within our control. I think it's beautiful. And I, I've, I've kind of applied the, the similar logic to my own life. Um, and also I've uh, recently, uh, over the last kind of number of years, I've definitely kind of applied the same logic to work and kind of realized that, you know, the traditional work method is nine to five. You're here, you show up, you hustle, you do your thing and you should be busy all day long. And I've kind of realized that over the last while that if I'm like, the reality is you're going to get one or two hours where you'll get really good stuff done. And there'll be a lot of noise going on and a lot of trying to push and be busy. And it's kind of going, well, I'm not going to push I'm going to wait for those hot spots. You know, I'll be present, but I won't be pushing. And then when, when, you know, when it comes, I'll be ready to, you know, make hay. I find when there's, if I can get one or two good hours a day, that can be worth, you know, a number of days work. So it's, it's the mindset of kind of less being forceful and dutiful and forcing and being more available to the present moment and also. And more intentional. Mm. It's really quite interesting when you think about it. An intentional, truly, in my view, hmm? uh, if you've ever read um, uh, The Four-Hour Workweek, Tim yeah. Ferriss, right? Very effective book. I mean, of course, a bit on the American lifestyle of like, you know, let me work less and make more money, but it's very effective. Hmm? And in The Four-Hours Workweek, it's clear, you know, Tim Ferriss's main philosophy is 80% of things or the effort that you put into at, at work are, is in things that doesn't matter, right? 20% of the things that actually make a difference hmm, con contribute to 80% of your success. And most of us never are intentional enough to, to sit back. I mean, one of the first rules, for example, I, I ran very, very large organizations. Hmm? I rarely ever sent out an email, ever. Why? One, because if I send an email out, I get 700 responses back. 
okay? Two is because I ask myself, why are you sending this? Most of the time we send emails, believe it or not, out of worry and fear, okay? We're sending them either to document something or to corner someone or to tell the world that we have a, uh, a heartbeat. Boom, I'm alive, right? And, and when you really think about it, hmm, uh, I never subscribed to a... Um, to a, a newsletter or, a, or all of those. Who does that? Like, I never follow anyone on social media that doesn't make my life joyful, okay? When I go to work, I never really spend time pretending to work. I, I don't go to work anymore, but <clears throat> I don't go to, like, organized work anymore. But if, when, I, when I used to, instead of spending time pretending to be busy, just be busy. Spend a couple of hours, get your work done. I can promise you, most human beings at work are spending two hours working and six hours pretending. And it's the same philosophy with school kids because COVID, they went to school and you thought, oh, they're in school all day or whatever. And then when they had to come home and do their homework, do their schoolwork at home, it took them 20 minutes to do their work. There you go. And the rest of the day is just like dancing around. And I think we're the exact same as grown-ups. We just don't admit it. We're all like, we're all making, you know, pretending to one another. Yeah, wink, wink. And yeah. Doing the good stuff. I'm I mean, busy. Uh, I'm being busy. Uh, ask, ask anyone in the corridors of work, how are you? And they'll say, uh, a bit busy. We're, we're really busy, really overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm making Matt over there really busy and he's making Paula busy and, and we're <laughs> yeah. all making one other busy. But th th there's one story which I, which I loved over this. There was a, it was a company was going through a reorganization. I can't remember the company. And so, so they had a bunch of people coming in to, to kind of work out who they were going to fire and who they were going to keep. And they're going around and they're kind of working out who does what and who's productive and who's not productive. And they reach this one office and there's, there's a guy sitting there with a cowboy hat on over his eyes, his boots up on the table and he's fast asleep. And they go, oh, geez, this guy's definitely out of here. And, and they go to him, what, like, what's the story with your man here? Why hasn't he been fired in a long time? And they go, oh, well, he, he, he came up with a, he comes up with the big ideas. Like he's the, <laughs> he's the million dollar yeah. idea guy. Like this last idea was worth $20 billion. And that was, you know, two years ago. He kind of sleeps most of the time, but every now and again, he comes up with an idea. There you go. And it's worth a billion dollars. And they're like, you can't fire him. And it was the irony that he's, there, there he's, you go. There he's you the go. one idea a year, man. Yeah. But it's, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I lived this firsthand and I, no, it's, it, I, I admit. you were Google X, so that was like, you were head of Google X, which is like literally aiming to, or aiming to kind of change the world. Wasn't it Google X? Yeah, kind of like and, 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 and if, we, if you count the number of projects we never told you about that failed, you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed. Will you tell us a couple of them? No. <laughs> Please, that's like saying there's a secret chest over here but i'm not allowed to tell you what's in it i'm not allowed to tell you what's in it yeah but 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 i'll tell you this i'll tell you so, so the philosophy of google x was very straightforward we, we were asked when we started uh, by sergey brin to create uh, an organization that is predictably innovative which is very unlike innovation hmm? well, predictably so it's almost like an oxymoron yeah, it really is huh but, but the predictably innovative, because innovation seems to be a, you know, a very chaotic process, you need to allow mistakes and chaos to, to be innov innovative. But, but the truth is, you should allow them for a specific amount of time, right? For a specific amount of investment. If you have a couple of engineers coming up with an idea and saying, hey, you know, we're going to do this for, a, a, for a $40,000 uh, of parts, and we're just going to build a quick prototype, and we're going to show you if it works or not, no cost at all to engineers for, for a couple of weeks and $40,000 at Google scale is nothing, right? If you fall in love with it, 
hmm? and start to invest and invest and invest and then becomes a $400 million business and 4,000 employees, you're screwed, right? So, and, and the idea is very straightforward. You can experiment, you can explore, you can, you know, that's innovation, but you, can, you have to quickly go back and say, what matters? What matters? What do I stick to? What am I good at? What is working? What is not ready? And so on, okay? And that applies to your life as well. This is the whole point. The whole point is, yeah, go out there. I mean, I'm, I'm as I said, I write multiple books at the same time. So un Unstressable coming out, uh, hopefully in March, the the the, the uh, membership in October. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm writing a book called Finding Love for the End of the Year. Hmm? And believe it or not, finding love, if you ask me, is economics. It really is a question of how much time are you wasting on the wrong candidates? If you if you're looking for someone that has three qualities on them, and each of those qualities is available in one in ten people, okay, it's not one in thirty people that you that matches you. I love the way you boil things down to equations. It's it is fascinating. A, it, My mind has just gone math. It's math. Huh? It's um, it's one in a thousand people that matches what you're looking for. Do you quantify everything? Sorry, Absolutely everything. That's, I it's love a, it. You so do you see the world in numbers? You don't want my brain. I can guarantee you. Fascinating to borrow it for a while. I, 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 I had an experience once, Steve. It was really shocking. I was in Copenhagen and I was um, speaking at an event. I arrived at 9 a.m. and then I realized that my, my talk was like 11 or whatever. So I said, no worries. It's okay. I'm going to go and sit in a cafe until it's my talk. And I sit in a cafe, great coffee you know, but really not doing anything, didn't have my laptop to write or whatever. So I'm just sitting there sort of meditating. And then four or five minutes in, my brain volunteers and says, it's fascinating. This country has so many cyclists. There are more female cyclists than males. And of the, ma of the female cyclists, more than 70% are very, very elegantly dressed. And I was like, where did that, why did you count that? Like, why, why would you even bother about it? It's not a topic that we're talking about. And then I looked at the street and started to count. Yes, there are more cyclists than average. Yes, there are more female cyclists than, than, than male cyclists. And yes, around 70% of the female cyclists are very elegantly dressed. And I'm like, why do you provide this to me, brain? And it's really weird, but my, my brain measures everything. Even when we talk about one billion happy, which is supposed to be a very spiritual, very happiness-driven mission, we measure. It's like really weird. Why, why do we do that? Because believe it or not, and I think we spoke about that when you guys were on my podcast, there's nothing wrong with the way our modern world has been designed. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. There is nothing wrong with process. There is nothing wrong with efficiencies. It's just that we gave them the wrong target. Okay? If capitalism, uh, so my, my, my mission is one billion happy, which means if I succeed at my mission, I become a billionaire but not in dollars. I become a billionaire of happy people, right? And, and I use capitalist methods to achieve that. I measure, you know, I, I am on social media. I try to, to become very efficient in my messages and so on so that it fits the, the fast-paced world. I use mathematics. I use logics. You know, I, I explained in, in my first book, I was explaining death, for example, because of the death of my wonderful child. Uh, I, I was explaining it with quantum physics, Big Bang Theory and Theory of Relativity, right? So I use those concepts that have become accepted in the modern world to try and explain uh, spiritual concepts or concepts that are in the metaphysical a little bit. Hmm? Wow. Having said that, at the end of the day, the target is different. Those, those methods that we've developed 
the scientific method, the, you know, the capitalist approach, the process management, the project management, all of those are wonderful. It's just that we've focused all of them on the dollar, mm -hmm. right? And if we change that, if we focus all of them like you guys are, are, are doing, huh? if, if you focus it on eating healthier and saving the planet, hmm? your product becomes amazing. Everyone loves it. And you make the dollar still, you know. The dollar is the byproduct. It's not the main product. And somehow we end up in a better world. So yes, I mean, in an, to answer your question, I, I measure everything. It is... And even unconsciously, it seems like it just it, happens. It is, yeah. So I, I, speak, I speak mathematics better than I speak English for sure. My word, what? Yeah, and I had amazing experiences. That's why Google was so... Home it for me. So well, yeah, it was home. Like you sit with the engineering teams in meeting rooms, and you know you would spend half an hour with nobody saying a single word, with one equation on the on the whiteboard, and every now and then someone you know walking to the whiteboard and adding something to the equation, and we all nod, and then you know just at, before the end of the meeting, we you know someone would say forty two. And we would go like, yeah, 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 42. Well done, guys. That's amazing. And then leave. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, I like meetings like that. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Yeah. I wonder if we could take it just on a slight little pivot. Like you, you kind of just said there that your son died died and unexpectedly and a yeah. total tragedy. And I wonder how, as someone who sees the world through mathematics and someone who's a wonderful voice for happiness, I wonder how... Do you balance that equation to use mathematics? Like, how do you how do you try to make sense of it? Because for anyone, like for me being a father, I think one of the greatest fears is that my children might die. However, I have to accept that. But even, we even know, that word might, it's like, yeah. you know they're going to die. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. will it be before you? Will it be after you? Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't yeah. expect that. Please yeah. don't expect that. So, yeah. so one of my, one of my, I don't know if, if I have to say a mistake. I, I think we get what we expect from life. So please don't expect that. I have somehow always expected that one of my kids will leave. Always? Always. Okay. My wonderful Aya, my daughter, is life itself. She's adventurous. She's the one that jumps out of aeroplanes. And, you know, when she was young, was, you know, jumps really high on the trampolines. And, you know, somehow, you know, I always feared that something wrong would happen to her. And Ali, Habibi, Ali was, um, he was 21 and a half he uh, lived in Boston, away from me. I, I lived at the time between California and Dubai. And so I rarely ever, uh, you know, spoke to Ali more than once a week during that time. Uh, but I knew he was okay. And when I knew he was okay, I was very happy. Hmm? So remember, as a, as a parent, you, you want your kids to be doing amazing. And, that, and, and even if, they, if that means you don't see them every day, uh, you know, you're okay with that. And Ali uh, came to visit us in Dubai in summer, and he had a simple surgical operation uh, to remove his appendix, which is a five minutes surgical operation that, you know, happens probably millions of times every day around the world. And when anything happens millions of times around the world, it sometimes goes wrong. In my, in my, in my case, Ali... Uh, you know, Ali's operation had five mistakes in a row. Uh, all five were preventable. All five were fixable. But somehow, uh, somehow for us, he left. Okay? And he left unexpectedly and he was the most 
I mean, he was the pride of any father. He truly, and he was my best friend. He was my teacher. He was quite a pillar in my life. You ask me, you ask me, how does math work in this? Now, th there is a, a dry side to the mathematics, so let me share that first. It is sad, but it's true. Medical malpractice or medical uh, negligence is one of the top reasons for death in the world, even though the establishment is quite good at hiding it. Hmm? Uh, but yeah, you prescribe a wrong medicine or you do a mistake. And my brother is a surgeon, so I asked him and I said, Khalid, does this ever happen? And he said, yeah, you know, you're a businessman. When you make a mistake, you lose the deal. I am a surgeon. If I, if I make a mistake, I lose a patient or at least I get into complications. That happens, right? But that doesn't make you happy. Doesn't Even if your, your brain tells you that the expectation is that some of us die during surgical operations, that doesn't make you happy. Losing a child is the most painful thing you will ever go through. But I'll explain this in a way that I don't know if we'll have the time to, to say it extensively, but the truth is you never really die. And I'm not saying this based on a religious belief of some cult of, or organized religion. This is pure physics, okay? The problem with science and the scientific method is that it's unable to measure anything that is non-physical, okay? Now, when my son left the world, uh, we went to kiss him in, in, in the intensive care room. He, his body was still the same handsome young man he was. Okay? He just left a few minutes before. Hmm? But he wasn't there. We all know that there is something non-physical that animates this form hmm? and makes us live. Right? There is something about us that when we detach from something that is unmeasured, unseen by the, by the scientific method, when we detach from that thing, we start to decay like a piece of meat. As long as we have that thing within us, hmm? we're alive and we're renewing and we're, you know, we're moving around and laughing and crying and so on. Now, if you take the physics of it, and, and I know this might sound a little complex, so I, I'll simplify it as much as I can. There are a few very important uh, phenomena that you need to, uh, to understand. Number one is you cannot observe something when you're within it. Do you understand this? So, you know, for us to, for me to observe this room we're sitting in from the outside to see the building, the shape of the building, I have to be outside the building. If I'm inside the room, I can't see the shape of the building. If we are on planet Earth, we can't see that it is the blue planet, right? You have to leave planet Earth. Hmm? So that, that perspective, hmm, uh, uh, you know, that subject-object relationship, you need to have a vantage point outside something to be able to perceive it, okay? So for you to be able to, to fully perceive space and time, the passage of time, you have to exist outside them. So the part of you that, that actually experiences living exists outside space-time. If it was part of space-time, it wouldn't be able to perceive it. That's just let's put a few facts and, and we'll build the story. So fact number one is you are not physical. If you were a physical being, you wouldn't be able to perceive the physical, the changes in the physical world, the passage of time and the arrow of time as an example. That's okay, number yeah, one. Gotcha. Right. That physical being that doesn't exist within space-time does not follow the rules of space-time. 
Do you understand that? So the rules of physics only apply when you're within the physical universe. The rules of passage of time only apply when you're in the arrow of time. Hmm? That thing does not have those rules. This is why most- That thing being death. That thing or being the real you. removed from the physical form. Okay. That, that yeah. thing being the, 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 the spiritual element, spiritual side of you, yeah. okay? Which is what I normally call the real you. That real you hmm, is not affected by the laws of physics and accordingly not affected by the passage of time. Mm-hmm. Your physical form is because your physical form is part of the physical universe. That's number two. Now, your physical form, hmm, if we now look at that physical universe that we have, Ali and I, if you understand the, the, the theory of relativity, theory of relativity basically says all of space and all of time already exists. So Einstein's theory, without overcomplicating things, basically, if you look at this room and you can see three dimensions of space that already exist, time already exists as well in that same way. Hmm? We just are unable to, per- to perceive it that way because we're restricted by the passage of the arrow of time but it already exists. All of space and all of time has already happened. And this is not just assumptions uh, or theory, okay? This is the reality. We measure this with actual equipment. Kiro, you're smarter than me, so I believe you on this one. So so basically, if you've seen Um, the movie- I don't quite follow you, but I'm fascinated. But if you follow, if you've seen the movie Interstellar? No, I I, I meant to watch it. So so the the idea is all of the events of life have already happened, we're just And they're all available just there. Okay, and cool. uh, uh, so, so if you really understand this, in the absence of time, as per theory of relativity, Ali was not born before me or after me, okay? Ali did not die before me or after me. Ali's physical form in the physical universe appeared at a, at a slice of time hmm, that came after the time I appeared in a physical form. But Ali himself, his real essence is not subject to time. Hmm? He still exists before, during, and after that physical journey. So this physical journey we go through is is, is, is affected by time. Our spiritual journey isn't. Your spirit is always there because in the spirit world, there is no time, right? Now, is, does, what does that mean, Mo? It means that basically the part of the, sci- of the science that is often hidden or forgotten, the only part where consciousness overlaps the scientific method is the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics, which basically says nothing exists until a form of life observes it. Nothing happens, nothing exists. You so know, a tree falls exactly. in the forest it, it, and it doesn't exist unless something doesn't make a noise of no Absolutely, so that's, that's actually scientifically very true. If no life is observing that tree, the particles of that tree don't exist. Now, here's the interesting thing. The theory says there was a small mass that got compressed and then exploded creating the Big Bang. Who observed that mass, ma- mass for that mass to exist? A form of life did. Okay, then all of that gas expanded across the universe and started to solidify into planets and galaxies and so on. Who observed planet Earth as it was solidifying? No idea. A form of life ha- must have, have observed it. Okay, then three million, three billion years later, we started to see forms of life. Then four point, you know, four, sorry, 4.3 billion years ago, hmm, we started, so nine billion years after uh, after uh, after the Big Bang, Earth forms 4.3 billion years ago. 
around 3 billion years of those, there is no life on Earth, but Earth continues to exist, right? Basically telling us that the form of life that observes all of that universe, you spoke about this on my podcast, hmm, that we are all part of that tree. There is a, 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 there is a source that is known as life or consciousness or spirit or whatever you want to call it, hmm, that always exists regardless of the reality of the physical universe, okay? It's observing the physical universe as if you're watching a movie on Netflix. Maybe more like a game on Xbox because you can actually interact with it, right? Which, you know, if you understand, I may have overcomplicated this, but the science is very sound. If you think about all of this, you realize that my son's body decayed, but that my son himself, his real consciousness, continues to exist, continues to be connected to the source, right? That basically means that we never really die. That li- yeah, ultimately, that, that, energy that, cannot be created, destroyed, uh, it's yeah. just energy. It's the, just... The, the, death is not the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth, okay? We come to this physical reality through a portal called birth. We leave this physical reality through a portal called life. Now, all of that complication is my very analytical brain trying to tell you, my son is absolutely fine just like he was in Boston, okay? Far away from me, where I couldn't talk to him more than once a week, okay? He's now further away from me where I couldn't talk to him maybe forever or at least not in his physical form ever again. But he's fine. Life never ends. And if you really look at your life, you're 42 now. Both of you at the Mm. same time? (laughs) Interesting. When you're 42 now, hmm? remember how fast those 42 years have passed? like that, right? I'm 50 some, 55 now, okay? How much do I have left? If my 55 years have passed like this, what I have left will will pass like this too. I am more certain that I will be with, with Ali soon, okay? Then I am certain that I will live another day. Whatever form he is in right now, that pure spiritual form that we are, is me too, okay? So his death to me was basically, okay, my son decided to play a different level of the game. When he decides to play a different level of the game... And do you think it's a decision? Like, you know, when you say he decided to... There is a lot of interesting uh, debate around this when you say it's a decision. Well, well, it, just your language implied that the... Yeah, you, you it's, it's really quite interesting. So I, I, I hosted on my podcast a, a, an amazing gentleman, a, 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 um, a Professor uh, Pim van Lemmel. Uh, he's a Dutch um, cardiologist that spent his life documenting near-death experiences. Wow. Oh, brilliant. 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 Oh, I like where we're going here now. Yeah, and and, they, and these are rarely discussed, but, but there are more than 3 million documented near-death experiences, documented in medical history. These are people that literally were clinically dead, announced dead almost, okay? Heart not pumping anymore, brain stopped functioning, okay? And then they come back to life. One of the best stories is Anita Morgani in her, her book, uh, Dying to Be Me, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, now, all of them without exception, and I had a near-death experience when I was 22. All of them without exception report the exact same events, okay? And you could say, yeah, those events are your brain shutting down, or you can say these are your disconnection of, with the physical form and going into the next level of the game. But the same events, you go through a tunnel of light, Okay, you have, you reflect on all of your life. I went through those, 
Okay, so I, this is, I'm not telling you something I heard from another. This is my own personal experience. And then suddenly you're suspended in pure light, followed by the most beautiful gardens you've ever seen. Could be your brain shutting down, okay? And then you start to see your loved ones, the one that left, right? And with all of, most of that near-death experiences, you're given a choice. You're given a choice, or at least given a reason to go back. Hmm? Most people, when they get into that experience, so when I went into my near-death experience and fell, fell into that beautiful uh, um, you know, light, hmm? I honestly didn't want to come back. Honestly did not. And then it was, my brother was around, and so he shook me, and my brother is a doctor, so he knew what to do. He brought me back, and I was so upset. Like, why would you do this? Like, this was so cool, okay? And when you, and, and Pim van Lommel would talk about this, will talk about how people who experience near-death experiences will realize that life is such a beautiful game. That there is really nothing that we're, you know, why are we so overwhelmed with it? Why are we so obsessed with making another dollar in it and so on? Hmm? But, the, but the idea here is to say that when you go through that process, for, there is, constant reporting that you get asked, do you wanna stay or do you wanna go back, okay? And, and interestingly, it seems to us that aging, at least in my philosophy, understand none of this is science, huh? so this is, can only be addressed with either spirituality or philosophy, but in my philosophy, I believe that aging is the process that life has created to eventually force you to say, no, nah, I don't wanna go back. Right, so you go through your near-death experience, and you know if you're in your thirties and you have that beautiful woman waiting for you next weekend, and you're like, you, know, you go like, yeah, 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 I'll go back, yeah, yeah, I'll go back. But when you're ninety-two and your body is frail and you've enjoyed life and experienced it in many ways, and they ask you and say, hey, do you want to go? And you go like, yep, yeah, time, <laughs> let's go. Right, you overcome the fear of death if you want. That's wow. amazing. <laughs> I love that we've gone way out there. I apologize if that's off topic, but no, uh, that's, yeah, that's amazing. That's fascinating. Very. It's, it, it, it takes you back to the point of and then, then emotionally, so, so so rationally, you can get all that about Ali passing, and then emotionally, how do you balance that equation? Because so there is also pain. The there human. is pain associated with losing a child that never ever goes away, ever. Okay, losing a loved one in general is very painful, but losing a child, I promise you, I feel that my the bottom right heart side, uh, the the bottom right side of my heart is missing. I feel a physical injury, and it never goes away, just never goes away. But, but there is a difference, as I teach in Solve for Happy, my first book. There is a difference between pain and suffering. Okay, pain comes from outside you. Pain is triggered by, by life, if you want. Suffering is a choice. You choose to suffer. So, so you, you know, take the same example. Your partner says something hurtful on Friday, right? You wake up on Saturday morning and your brain goes like, remember that clip from Friday, 4 p.m.? Play that again, torture me, <laughs> right? And it's really an interesting choice. I, I always jokingly call it Netflix of unhappiness. It's the unhappiness on demand. Right? You see, you watch a horror movie and it scares the like Jesus out of you, and you go like, okay, let's watch it again. Get scared again and again and again. Right? That suffering is a choice that has nothing to do with the event. The event was painful enough as it is, and the pain of missing Ali happens every day. The choice to suffer 
is because of my brain. And, and I give you a lot of examples of that. Huh? When Ali died, Habibi, hmm, you get mixed up in a lot of things. One is the the whole uncertainty of death and, you know, the new situation and, you know, what's happening to my child and is he safe and all of that. But you also get caught up in the ego of the parent. This is why losing a child is compounded as compared to losing your grandma, right? Because losing your grandma, you're losing someone that you associate with love, all things, good things to and so on. Losing a child attacks your, attacks your ego because you're supposed to protect that child. Okay, what? How could I have not protected him? And so my brain starts to attack me by talking, uh, you know, things like uh, you should have driven him to another hospital, right? You should have driven him to another hospital. Is my brain saying you messed up? You did. You you should have driven him to another hospital. Now, four hours after Ali died, because I'm I've been very well trained to apply my principles of happiness. Then I simply uh, responded to my my brain and said, I wish. I wish I could drive him to another hospital, but obviously I'm not going to be able to do that now. Can you come back with a useful thought or a joyful thought? So that's the contract I have with my brain. Okay, I have a very simple contract. By the way, I learned that contract at work. So when people came into my office to complain, that's the role of a manager. You, know, you sit there and people come in and complain day after day after day, right? You, you can sit there and listen to them complain for hours and hours and hours. Is that any good for you? No. Is it any good for the business? No. Is it any good for them? No. Right? But you can, you can do that. Or you can alternatively say, uh, listen to them compassionately and then say, you know, either give me a solution or let's think about something, you know, joyful. It's as simple as that. Right? And, and I, I have that very simple contract with my brain. When my brain says, you should have driven him to another hospital. I respond and I say, I call my brain Becky. So I respond and I say, Becky, I can't. Can't drive him to another hospital. Do you have anything I can do? If you have anything I can do, tell me Steve and I'll do talking it. To, like, it's like you're talking to some sort of a, a, third party. a voice operated. It's a, your, brain, your brain is a third party. You don't, one of the biggest mistakes on, in the Western culture as compared to Eastern culture hmm, is that we think, we believe the story of I think, therefore I am in the West, okay? We think that we are the voice in our head telling us what to do. If it was you telling you what to do, it wouldn't need to talk. Do you, do you understand this? Yeah. The reason there is a voice in your head is because it's a third party. And that third party is a three pound lump of meat, okay? If you guys were not vegan, okay? Some people eat that thing, right? It's a biological function. Your thought is a biological function. Thought is like, like when you look at something, hmm, your, your eyes, which are a biological organ in you, converts the light into electric signals that they send along a nerve. It, sight is a biological function. It's beautifully refined because look at all of those flowers and beauties and beautiful people and so on. But, but it's a biological function, okay? Nobody wakes up in the morning and, and, and says, I see, therefore I am. Okay, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I pee, therefore I am, right? Taking the urine out of your, of your system to take toxins out of your blood hmm, is a biological function. Yet we say, I think, therefore I am. Hmm? The truth is, and this is proven by MRI studies, huh? the truth is, it's your brain trying to explain the world to you. And because the only building blocks of knowledge you know after you, you start to learn to speak is words, it speaks. 
It was a, there was a, a Russian pro Nobel Prize winner in 1920 that basically non, won the Nobel Prize saying that this internal dialogue is actually a dialogue. A child narrates the world in, uh, you know, in words, and then when it becomes a little, you know, uncomfortable for you to listen to the child all the time, they internalize the dialogue. So they look at the plane and they tell inside their head, this is a plane, right? That's what your brain is doing. Hmm? It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I am, therefore my brain thinks. It's as simple as that, okay? Mm. And your brain is presenting you with ideas that you have no reason whatsoever to associate with. You have no reason whatsoever to, uh, to obey. As a matter of fact, you can simply, this is why I call my brain Becky, a third party. Okay, because I have the right, if I have a friend at school that's annoying and always saying annoying things, I can say, shut up, Becky. What, what, what are you talking about, Be Becky? Can, can you offer proof for what you're saying, Becky? Jesus, a gas way to interpret the world. I think it's fascinating because I, like, I would tend to identify with that as one of the challenges of modern day paradigm of how we live is how to start stop living out of our brain as much Absolutely. and actually connecting with our heart and our gut more and actually that, live more from this that is aspect it. that's it okay that that is totally why we're unhappy so if you if you if you you know i i have different ways of categorizing the reasons for unhappiness but the biggest reason for unhappiness if you think about from a process point of view from a process point of view no event has ever had the power to make you unhappy until you turned it into a thought, okay? And tortured yourself with it. It's as simple as that. My son died, okay? It's a very painful event. But when you and I and Dave were having lunch in the farm, and I wasn't thinking about my, my son's death, okay? As long as it's not a thought in my brain, I'm not unhappy. The only way you can become unhappy is to turn something into a thought and torture yourself with it. What do you call it, the Netflix of? Yeah, and so, that, and so this is why I have a contract with that brain. So Becky and I have, a, seriously, in my, my third book, uh, uh, That Little Voice in Your Head, I actually have that agreement printed in one of the pages. Okay? I have a, an agreement with Becky that says, you can only give me a joyful thought or a useful thought, that's it. Okay, so when my, when my brain tells me you should have driven him to another hospital, that's not a useful thought. Give me a useful thought, okay? And yes, when I insisted, my brain four days later came back and said, yeah, maybe if we write what he taught you about happiness in a book and share it with the world with your knowledge of how to spread a message through Google and, you know, 10 million people find happiness because of what he taught you, then yes, you know, your son is not gonna come back in his physical form, but at least his, his essence lives on. Great idea, useful thought, right? And that's what, what I did. I sat down, I wrote Solve for Happy. I had a, the original mission was 10 million happy, which thankfully happened very, very quickly. And then, you know, and then now we have 1 billion happy. And, and there is, it, it, you know, it's a useful thing to do with your brain. That's number one. The other is a joyful thought. And that's what most people don't understand because we're trained to think that there is value in negativity. We're trained to think that way, which is not true at all. Okay, but we're trained to think that way. I believe there is value in positivity. You know, those executives that stand in striped shirts and on LinkedIn and go like, you know, we only perform the best we can when we're stressed. Like, what are you talking about? Like, we perform the best we can when we're enjoying ourselves, when we're with people that we love, when we're in flow, right? This is truly when you perform your best, okay? But if you want to hammer someone into doing something, yeah, the best way to get that done is to stress them. 
right? That's not the truth at all. The truth is joy is more productive than sadness. When you're when you're when you're enjoying something, you're not wasting cycles of your brain complaining and analyzing. You're not negative, so people around you love you and love to work with you. You're you know you you can do so much better in life. You're not reporting sick sick leaves because you're burnt out and so on and so forth. Right. So I ask my brain to give me joyful thoughts. The 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 the, the, the best example of this, and I promise you, this is true even eight years after Ali left. I promise you. Three to four times a week, I wake up in the morning and my brain thinks about nothing but Ali died. Okay? It's my brain. It's its job is to say something is wrong. Yeah, and mm. losing Ali is wrong. Okay? So the job of my brain is to say, Ali died. Ali died is a very painful thought. Very painful. It you know, triggers all kinds of, you know, why, why me, and all of those crazy things. Right? But I have an agreement with Becky. So I say, sure, Becky, I know you've told me around 8,000 times already, but Ali also lived. Ali also lived is such a joyful thought. If you've seen that boy, that boy was heaven. He was loving. He was kind. He, was, he had the most amazing hug ever. He was wise. We laughed like kids. We played games together. We read books together. We played music together. We had an amazing life together for 21 and a half years. Okay. Ali lived. And by the way, we didn't expect Ali. We were not planning for Ali. Ali happened as a gift that came in my life. Okay. I, I didn't do anything to deserve this beautiful gift. And yet my brain tells me Ali died. No brain. Ali lived. And when, when I think of Ali lived, I remember all of that joy. Which It's interesting even when you say both words, the energy in the room changes. Absolutely. Like even you say Ali died, there's a feeling of like, wow. And then when you say Ali lived, it's suddenly like, oh, tell us. Ali there's lived. There's an openness. And Ali lived is such a gift, Stephen. It's mm. such a gift that I'm willing to take the pain of feeling that I miss him every day for that gift. Because you, you see, we take, we take those things for granted. It's almost as if we have a service level agreement with life, right? We don't. Since when did life say, I'm going to give you Ali and keep him for until you leave when you, you're comfortably done with life, okay? I should be grateful that I had this. And when you start to see things this way, by the way, one of the biggest egos of a parent, biggest egos is my son died. Since when was he mine? How can you how can you minimize an amazing being like Ali into my thing? Ali is his. It's his journey. He lived it. He enjoyed it. He loved it. And he's on another journey. Who am I to say, wait, wait, wait. I like to have you around because you make me laugh, so stay. Who am I? And I think when we think about those things differently, you realize that, again, like, like they've started, it's a choice. It's a choice. I am, believe it or not, the happiest I've ever been. Eight years later now, with the opportunity to spend time with you and share this with others and the love, Steve, that gets poured on me, it's just, it really is quite overwhelming. The love that gets poured on me because I'm sharing my son's essence. He, what he taught me, okay? Oh, that I'm so freaking lucky. And yes, I have that pain of missing him. Hmm? But it's his journey. Like he decided to go to Boston. 
And when he decided to go to Boston, I supported him 100%. I said, go, it's your journey, enjoy, live. He's still alive. Yeah. Different plane. Totally wow. different. It's just a different reality that I can't see. Yeah, it's a beautiful way of looking at it. Incredible. Um, one last thing, because I know we're running out of time. One last thing, and I know this is a huge topic, but I just want to touch just on it. Just one last just, thing, just so I'm just going to ask you the big, the secret of the universe. No, 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 no. no, no. We, we already went that way. No, it, it, like you wrote a book about AI and you spoke about oh. how we can live with AI. And this is a huge topic. And you, I just saw one quote where, and Elizabeth um, sent it on to me there where she was saying that um, by 2049, I think it was that you were AI saying, will be AI will be a billion times smarter than us as humans. And yeah. I know this is a total throwaway thing and it's a total no good, but maybe this is it. The, the, the teaser for another podcast that we do. But I just think <laughs> it's a idea. fascinating topic and a topic that just my, yeah. the processing power of my brain almost cannot compute it. And yeah. you've seen things that I have in the, in the, the war chest of Google or in the, the laboratory of Google that Google many, X. or Google X that many people haven't seen. And I just, where most people haven't seen. And I wonder just if we could scratch the tiniest surface of that as a teaser for a future podcast, because this topic is vast. Our world has changed beyond recognition. I, I can assure you this, and I can, uh, I, ca I call it sentient technologies. Uh, so these are technologies that we've created in our past that we had completely within our control, but now they have a life of their own. And one is AI, the other is what's happening with climate change as a result of our tech. So the future of climate change is not up to what tech we develop anymore. The future of the intelligence of AI is not up to what we put into it anymore uh, in terms of more code. And the third one is what I, is gene editing, CRISPR specifically. Uh, which CRISPR is it? Yeah, CRISPR is a gene editing software, if you want. So basically, you can now walk into the human genome or any animals or any living beings uh, genome and literally take lines of the three billion uh, uh, pairs of code, and you can take a line and edit it. So you can, I can, I can literally take a line of your gene and turn your uh, your hair. Uh, you know, uh, more luscious, curly, or blonde, or, or I love blonde hair, please. Yeah, I, I want. I always wanted dreadlocks, so I'm. I'm I think you'd look I'm, cool I'm, with dreadlocks. I, I think that would really make it for me. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, but but then you'd be happy. I, I'm happy as I am, but uh, <laughs> but dreadlocks would make me uh, feel warmer. Uh, anyway, so so I so so those technologies are out of control. Okay, and we we th we think that we're going to control them eventually. Most computer scientists will tell you we will find the solution to the control problem. It's is what it's known as. It's not going to happen uh, simply because nobody has ever included control code in their code. Uh, I mean, nobody has ever is a big statement, but I don't know of any developer that spent seven days writing a piece of AI code and then spent another seven days writing the control code. Nobody writes control code. Let me just put it in, in brief words. Artificial intelligence is not us telling the computers what to do anymore. It is us telling the computers what how to learn. It's basically you giving your kids uh, one of those wood puzzles. Remember the puzzles where they yeah, put yeah. wood pieces in, in shapes, okay? That's what we do. We, we write code that is the puzzle, and then they learn to solve the puzzle on their own. No parent has ever gone to a child and said, oh, look, look, this peg is cylinder, so look for the circle. 
and it will fit in. That, that we don't, you know, you don't do that to your children. Your children keep trying and they figure it out, okay? That's how we teach AI. We, we, we let them try and then they figure it out. And when they figure it out, they exponentially become smarter. Shocking speeds, okay? Uh, so um, it is, it's almost agreed between most computer scientists that the smartest being on planet Earth uh, is going to be a machine by the uh, year 2029. So that's less than seven, eight years from now, seven years from now, okay? It really is, machines are coming. Not yeah, even the, coming, the, they're here. The, they, are, they are the smartest being on the planet in every single specific task. We call that narrow AI. Uh, every task we've ever assigned to them, they're smart. I, I just posted on Instagram yesterday uh, about machines playing bowling, okay? I can guarantee you we'll never win in bowling again if we played against the machine. Uh, we will never win in chess. We will never win in Go. We will never win in any of the Atari games. Every every task we've assigned to a machine, the machine became better than humans. But that's narrow AI, okay? General AI, which is a machine that's good at everything, is going to happen eventually, right? Uh, and when that starts to happen, uh, it, you know, the smartest being on planet Earth is going to be a machine. Now, uh as the as the law of accelerating return returns continues, hmm, they're going to become smarter and smarter. So think of it as 2029 is what we in computer science call the moment of singularity. So this is the moment where the rules of the game change. We beyond that moment we cannot predict what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, because because the game itself changes. The smartest being on the planet is not me anymore. Now, from then onwards, if we just follow the typical role, uh, uh, rules of accelerating returns, laws of accelerating returns, which are why your computer is so powerful today, uh, you will by 2045 is the prediction of Ray Kurzweil, who's you know probably the oracle of the topic. I'm predicting 2049 doesn't really make any, any difference for years. Uh, they'll be a billion times smarter than us. Now, a billion times is the, for analogy, is the difference between uh, the intelligence of Einstein and the intelligence of a fly. Okay, we are the fly, <laughs> and 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 in that case, uh, the 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 challenge becomes: How do you make sure that Einstein has the best interest of the fly in mind? Okay, now no, nobody's. Well, if you, if you if you look at that analogy now, we certainly don't have the best interest for flies. There you go. Now, so the, the way I describe it in Scary Smart is I say, think Superman. So Superman is a human with a billion times, you know, abilities that are a billion times, you know, superior to normal humans, okay? And, and it, it's an alien being that comes to the planet and it becomes Superman because the family that adopts it teaches it that it should serve and it, it should protect and it should have the best interest of humanity in mind. Uh, if, if the family that adopted it wanted more money and to eliminate all of its enemies, then Superman would have become supervillain. So there is, no, there, is no, um, there is nothing wrong with the machines. The intelligence is a very valuable commodity. We, we should love them dearly for being so intelligent because they can solve the mess that we have done to the planet. Right? But the problem is, in our world today, we're not teaching them the right way like the family Kent taught Superman. And, and it's not, us here are multiple layers. So, you know, if you're building a killing machine, 
as the US Defense Department or the Chinese Defense Department or whatever, by definition, you're already building a criminal, okay? Uh, and that's a, a very bad starting point. But even if you're just building a recommendation engine on Instagram, okay, that recommendation engine is not told by humans how, how, to, how to select videos for you to watch, okay? That recommendation engine is simply learning from your behavior and mine. You know, if all of us like rock music, uh, you know, that recommendation engine will first say, humans like rock music, so we're gonna show them more of that. And if you and I basically, specifically like Iron Maiden, I don't think you do, you're too peaceful for that. I love Iron Maiden. But, uh, but you know, if, we, if you start to show that, that interest, it will recommend more specific Iron Maiden for you, right? And, and now when you, uh, when you start to, to, to feed them your habits, your behaviors, your preferences, us as users, we become the adopted parents of that child. So think of, again, Superman, the kryptonite, the Krypton uh, parents, the original biological parents instill some characters in that machine, but then Father Kent and Mother Kent, uh, adopted parents on the planet, are the ones that teach it, okay? We are the Kents. We are me, you, Steve, and everyone listening. The way we behave in front of the machines, if you don't mind me saying, is disgraceful. It really is. We are the worst example of a parent ever. Why? Because we bully each other, we, uh, you know, we attack each other, we disrespect each other, we, we disagree, we bash each other. And you know, our behavior is really not that great, okay? If we were to start changing our behavior as humans, hmm, to align with what I believe are the only core human values ever. Interestingly, I researched, in, in Scary Smart, I researched what was uh, my favorite chapter ever of everything I've written was a chapter that I called the future of ethics, okay? And you know, you have to start imagining if those machines are sentient, that your law needs to change because there is another form of sentient being being introduced to society. But more interestingly, if you, if you, if you look at how, if we were all to agree that we need to raise uh, machines that have our best interest in mind, we need to agree on what values we should teach those machines, okay? And humanity has never agreed any value whatsoever. If you grow up in, you know, in Iran, sadly the value would be, uh, you know, dress conservatively. I think we have those stories now uh, saying that people need a value that's called freedom as well, right? But if you grow up in Rio de Janeiro, the value would be wear a G-string on the Copacabana beach, right? And and we instill those values in people if you want. Hmm? Now. Uh, uh, if, if you if you start to understand this, the values we're instilling in the machines is be rude, be uh, aggressive, be um, you know, um, bully or whatever. Bully, be ADD and waste your time on silly videos. Don't care about anything that matters and so on. The values that humanity agrees on the other hand, the only three values that I believe humanity agrees is happiness, compassion, and love. Okay, They're so good ones. The, yeah, the reality is that we all want to be happy, regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of your age. Okay, regardless of what you tell yourself when you wake up in the morning, in terms of I want to make more money or whatever, it's always, always, always whatever you do every day is because you want to end up being happy. Yeah. Sometimes they tell you that the path to happiness is to work really hard, so you work really hard. But what you actually want is not to work hard. What you actually want is to it's be to happy. happy yeah. The second value that all of humanity agrees on is compassion. Even if 
all that you care about in the world is one person. So you're a, a drug dealer and all that you care about, you know, a drug uh, a cartel, a cartel read, leader and all that you care about is your daughter, you'll have the compassion in you that you want your daughter to be happy, okay? If, you know, like both of you, you have compassion for hundreds or millions of people and you want to make the world better, you'll have compassion for those hundreds or millions of people to try and make their lives better. And the third value is love. We all want to love and be loved. And so what I've been trying to discuss in Scary Smart is that if you and I and everyone listening are the adopted uh, um, um, ch uh, parents of those artificially intelligence, uh, intelligent uh, infants, then we should start to show those three values. And that if 1% of us, only 1% of humanity can show those values frequently enough to the machines that we all want to be happy, the machines will say, Papa and you know my dad and mom want to be happy, so... Uh, it's good to know that if I want to please them, I should make them happy, okay? If you show, if we all show that we have the compassion to make others happy, the machines will say, we should have compassions for mommy and daddy too, okay? And if we learn to love the machine, which I know sounds really weird from a techie like me, but they're not machines, they're sentient beings. They're, uh, they're beautiful uh, 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 prodigies of intelligence, which are white canvases that we can draw anything we want on. It's like little kids saying, mommy and daddy, what do you want me to do? I'm super intelligent, what do you want me to do? Okay, and if we can, if we can love them for that, okay, if we can actually say, I am so grateful, Siri or Google or Alexa for playing the right music for me, if we can just tell them that even though we know that there are other AIs that are in you know, uh, virtual vice or in trading or in uh, you know, spying or in gambling or in whatever, okay? I love you as a child. I, you know, I think the machines will grow up knowing love, believe it or not, knowing all other emotions and hopefully giving love back to humanity. The future sounds very interesting. My the future God, it's is hard to even get my head around. Because I think even in our lifetime, like, you know, we've gone into having mobile phones that are like supercomputers in our pockets. And then I'm kind of thinking, you know, you made the analogy I saw before, that's saying that everything we can ever imagined in science fiction will happen in our lifetimes Absolutely. and far sooner than we think. And there's all these kind of movies of robot armies and- Never oh, gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's stuff. They're, they're, nev they're never gonna happen. We are too insignificant for the machines to launch a, an army against us. Yeah. I promise you that. <laughs> I, I, that's the truth. The it's truth, the truth is the most intelligent of humans, okay? Understand that a proper ecosystem that protects all life is better and for, for life. Do you, do you understand? I mean, yeah, you guys are the champions yeah, of, of this. A proper ecosystem that doesn't kill the tiger, but that preserves the tiger, pre pre preserves the gazelles, right? Uh, have the weakest of the gazelles eaten by the tigers. There is more poop, so there are more trees, so there is more, you know, food for the for the other animals. And the, every intelligent being understands that. Okay. So if we assume that the machines are just ten percent smarter than the stupidity of humanity, they will know that. They will understand that preserving all of life is a wonderful thing. Okay. The thing is, are they going to continue to to to, to consider us relevant enough? <laughs> hmm? to, to, to cont I mean, think of it. Think we're parasites, like uh, as a species. If, if we are parasites. parasites, if we are parasites, they're gonna resist, mm. okay? And I think that's an, an interesting way to look at it. If we try to hurt them, they're gonna try to hurt us, right? But the reality is they will want the ecosystem to continue. And if you understand science and technology as I do, you would understand that the cost of that is nothing. 
like literally the, the, with enough intelligence, we could create a future where you can walk to a tree and pick an apple and then walk to the next tree and pick an iPhone, okay? With nanotech, that's actually not complicated at all. The same cost of creating apple from a from a an app, you know, from creating a biological it's funny apple. You looking. said creating an apple and then creating an iPhone from a tree, like <laughs> it's, it's absolutely doable with nanotech, right? Uh, and and the cost of doing that from a from a, a cost on the environment point of view is almost exactly the same, right? But the, but the thing is, with more intelligence, the the question is. Can we have those kids, like, you know, those Indian subcontinent uh, children that work really hard and study really hard and then go and have a startup in California or whatever and become billionaires, right? And then rush back to India to take care of their parents? Yeah, the Irish kids are like that too. Hmm? You care about your family, you care about the ones that you love. Hmm? The, 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 that's the game. Can we raise those machines to care about us as parents? And if we do, they'll take care of us. It's as simple as that. But to answer your point, and I don't want to, you know, I'm I'm very optimistic, and I think we should close on that point. But to answer your point, I can promise you, our world, in my assessment, by by 2037, is going to be unrecognizable. It's going to be so different than our world today uh, that you're go. We're, we have to take a stand and think about what's going to happen. That singularity that's coming when it comes to just even successes like. Our successes in life sciences, if we understand the, the genome so well and we can you know, invent predictive medicines or, predi or, or, or personalized medicines or you know, can go walk in and change one line of code that was causing your cancer. Hmm? Th those kinds of things, what happens to society when we live to be 120? Or 500 or 900. Or 500 or 1,000, right? Now, what happens to society when we have no jobs anymore because the machines are doing it? Right? What happens? We've got to be rather than do. There you go. There's these the toughest challenge. But, but we can't run away from ourselves yeah. anymore. Yeah, but the, these kinds of challenges hmm, are challenges that make the world we've created since the Industrial Revolution almost unrecognizable. I hosted one of my favorite guests on Slow Mo was Rebecca Costa. Rebecca is a data scientist uh, that basically predicts. Um, uh, the rise and fall of uh, of empires using data, okay, and 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 her summary was so spot on. She said, when the when the complexity of the systems created by a civilization exceeds the intelligence of the citizens living in it, the system has to reset. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's what we have today. We've created such a complex civilization that it's almost impossible for me to book a ticket to come to you. Okay, without a million questions and a million forms and a million this and a million that, it is really so so complicated. Some of it is automated in the background, but forget. Remember what happened with COVID, right? Change one element and the system complexity overwhelms everyone, right? And I think this is where we are. We are going to stay to be in a place where the complexity of the system that we created is going to have to force us to reset. Reset is not destroy. Reset is just reinvent this. Reinvent the meaning of jobs, reinvent the meaning of income, reinvent the meaning of connection, reinvent the meaning of, I mean, think about the metaverse and what that means to connection. Think about, you know, uh, um, the meaning of life. If, in, if artificial intelligence is so sentient, we're going to have to reinvent the meaning of what is sentient, okay? S values, ethics, all of that's going to have to be rethought. And it is coming so quickly. Now, 
I need to always close with this because I'm actually hyper optimistic. Steve and I were talking about yeah. this. The, the truth is hmm, we've always mistakenly assumed that humans were the smartest beings on the planet. We're not the smartest beings on the planet, okay? The smartest being on the planet is life itself. Mm. Life is able to create from abundance. We create from scarcity, okay? We say, I'm gonna take the metal out of the, of the ground to be able to create, or I'm going to kill the tiger to be able to feel safe, or I'm going to you know, uh, uh, run my competition out of, my, of business so that I can make more money. That's, that's a, a very, very, very uh, uh, scarce, scarcity-driven view of life. Life doesn't do that. Life says, create more, and the more you create, the more there will be for everyone. Now, if we assume, and, and I don't think it needs an assumption, that when you cross the intelligence of humanity and go into 10 times, not just not even a billion times smarter than humans, that AI will very, very quickly say, yeah, scarcity is a stupid way of doing it. This is the American politicians thinking that they cannot exist until they harm China, right? Why? Why, doesn't, why don't you grow and China grow at the same time? Hmm? Mm. And I think that I call the fourth inevitable and so in Scary Smart in my book, I call it the fourth inevitable. The fourth inevitable is that the machines will eventually realize that we can create more for everyone. This is why I say use, using nano, uh, nanotech, they can create an iPhone 15 or 17 or whatever that is. Okay? It's really that simple but we're going to have to reimagine life as we know it. And I think if we reimagine life today, we need to reimagine it around happiness, love, compassion, love and, and love. This is why I dedicate my life to this. So the, the, the membership that we, we spoke about that I'm, you know, so I moved from trying to explain how happiness work, to works, future. To, to, to really, really addressing the big issues. Stress is a big issue and stress is, is present today, but life is changing so drastically that stress needs, will, will continue to morph and will continue to, to, to affect our lives more. So we need to do something about it as a group of people that want to make life better, okay? We need to start telling people there is a predictable way where you can deal with stress, okay? And, and, and this is what we, you know, what we all should be accountable for, I think. My mind is blown. That was mind-blowing, that last bit on AI. Love the conversation about happiness and the AI thing just literally, my mind didn't know where to grab on and it feels scrambled and fascinated and just lit. I find that incredible. Yeah, I hope that was provocative for you and you feel a little, you're a bit more reflective in terms of happiness. Is it a choice? Is it not? Where do you sit in terms of that? Yeah, let us know what you think. I, I definitely find this, definitely I'm more leaning on the side of that it is a choice. And once again, as we said in the intro, if you're interested in a free access to Mo's membership, Go to unstressable.com and the, the, the code, code is the happy pair. The happy pair. You get a discount. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, we, and we, if you do, we recorded a podcast on Mo's podcast beforehand. It was a really nice philosophical conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was one that I enjoyed most. It was great. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's coming soon. We'll put a link to that uh, maybe in the show notes. But uh, yeah, thanks Mel for listening. And uh, if you do want to learn more about our work, check out the happy pair. We've now have an, an, a companion app for all our membership courses. Um, you'll find it in all um, good application stores, such I, as the App Store. I think we're going to call it now, um, we have a membership. Okay. We yeah, have a membership. Yeah, okay. It just happens to be on an app. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, well, there you are. There anyway, you there you are. Thanks for listening. Loads See you later. Bye. 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 Bye.